Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We are somewhere in the deep middle of the strangest and most frightening period of our lives. The virus is no longer novel to us, and we've all made radical adaptations in our daily lives to its ubiquitous menace. We are, all of us, walking in the middle of an unknown thick forest with no idea where the other side lies and when we can hope to get there. The landmarks are head spinning. There have now been over 1 million confirmed cases of infection worldwide, 200,000 of them in the U.S., nearly 90% of Americans and half the world, half the world, are under stay-at-home orders. Dr. Fauci says it should be 100% of this country. 10 million Americans have filed for unemployment, 6.6 million, or more than eight times the pre-virus record, this week alone. The virus is not just affecting, but dominating every aspect of national life, from healthcare to politics, from economy to leisure. We're going to take up three of the most pressing of those aspects today with a stellar group of guests whose expertise, reporting, and analysis have made them go-to commentators in these extraordinary weeks. They are first, Matt Miller, a partner at the strategic advisory firm Vianovo, an MSNBC contributor and the previous director of Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice. He's very well known to listeners in this podcast, and I would say the undisputed RBI leader of Talking Feds. Thanks, as always, for being here, Matt. Thanks for having me, Harry. Next, David Fromm returns to Talking Feds. David's a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's the author of nine books, most recently, Trumpocracy, the Corruption of the American Republic. And he served in government as a speechwriter for President George W. Bush. Welcome back, David. Thank you so much. And finally, we're very pleased to welcome, for the first time to Talking Feds, Ashley Parker, the White House reporter for The Washington Post and a contributor to MSNBC and NBC. Ashley's professional distinctions run many pages, but among them are... She won the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting two years ago for her coverage of Russian interference. She previously spent 11 years as a political reporter at the New York Times, and President Trump last year tweeted that she was a, quote, nasty lightweight reporter and called for banning her from the White House. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Feds. You will find a welcome refuge here. (laughs) Thanks for having me. All right. Let's dive in. So in the post this morning, Phil Rucker and Bob Costa write, in the three weeks since declaring the novel coronavirus outbreak a national emergency, President Trump has delivered a dizzying array of rhetorical contortions, sowed confusion, and repeatedly sought to cast blame on others. Yet his approval ratings are up. Has he gotten another mind-boggling pass for his obvious and highly damaging blunders of January and February? Has he now managed to turn the corner? Ashley, you've had several stories about uh, Trump this week, including your one of uh, of the 24th. Any Any thoughts about where Trump now stands? Well, I think it's too early to know, you know, sort of the long term political ramifications of where this ends up. Um, But that story my colleagues did on sort of the confuser in chief was a fantastic one because that's the president's M.O. almost always. He says so many things and so many things, frankly, so unclearly that when he is then criticized or 
called on them, he's able to go back and and point to, well, you know, to sort of basically pick and choose the details that support the thesis that he wants to make on any given day. So we're seeing that now with the pandemic, how basically he seems, if, if you look back at the past week, as I was just thinking about, there's not necessarily an overarching messaging you might expect to see emanating out of this administration, but each day kind of has its own message because this is a president who is constantly trying to win that day's news cycle, right? So, or, or that moment's news cycle. So I think back to Saturday, for instance, the day began with him floating a quarantine of the New York region because Governor DeSantis had told him that might be a good idea. Then there was a lot of criticism and backlash and confusion and panic. And then by that evening, he tweeted out the exact opposite. No quarantine after all. I think back to Tuesday, where he offered probably the most traditional response in a news conference. It was grim and somber and, and serious and sober, where he basically said the best case scenario was, you know, 100,000 to 240,000 people dead. And that was a direct contradiction to you know, just weeks before when when he was minimizing and playing down the crisis. So in some ways, he offers kind of a Rorschach test where people can pick and choose what, what they want to hear. That That's dangerous in a crisis. But your original question, how does it work politically? In some ways, maybe, and again, it's a little too soon, but but it can help him because you can cherry pick the things that, that help him. I tend to agree with Ashley. I think there are some lessons you can draw from looking at presidential approval ratings from past crises. And number one is that the country likes to rally around the president. Most presidents in any type of major crisis. And the same is true for governors. We'll see a tick up in their approval ratings. It may last, it may not, but they see an initial bump. And his is not, by historic standards, all that high. It's low, in fact, right? It's very low. And it's low compared to, say, the bump that Governor Cuomo has gotten. But the other lesson that you have to take is not to really look at polling in the middle of the crisis, because it does take a long time for the public to kind of catch up with events and and decide what they think about events. And that includes how the president handles events. I, I I do think, though, all that said that, you know, the president does have a pretty powerful platform with these daily briefings that he's holding at the White House. And you go through the litany that Ashley just went through. And for people like me and people like you, Harry, and put I think safely put David in this category, too, who have been longtime critics of the president, it's frustrating to see his approval rating go up at all. But the public doesn't always, well, I'll put it this way. He has always shown an ability to just kind of get up and and with each new news cycle, tell a different story and often tell a different lie, mislead in a different way. And it takes a long time for the facts to catch up with those lies. And often they never do. But I do suspect that in the long run, this will be much different than previous events that he's gone through, just because the facts on the ground as they continue to spread across more and more of the country are, are not the kind of facts that he can spin or explain away. So I'm just right now looking at the Gallup chart of the 30-point approval jump that Jimmy Carter got after the Iranian seized American hostages in November of 1979. And it didn't save him in the end, did it? Donald Trump got four or five-point bump when he looked from the rally around the flag event. As I look at the polls, that's already all gone. And that is from polls that were conducted before the second week of layoffs from the coronavirus. It's possible that all known public opinion rules in all other democracies have been suspended for Donald Trump, and that in the face of 10 million unemployed as of today, many more to come, that the most catastrophic economic situation since 1932 can somehow, the president can somehow BS his way out of it. I, I tend to think that's not what is going to happen. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. We, we have to try as best we can, and it is completely obscure to judge how this is going to look from the vantage point of August and September. I realized, as Ashley was talking, this is the very rare talking feds in which I'm the only lawyer at the table. So I can just report to underscore what she was saying on this quarantine point where he postured as if maybe he was going to do it. That sort of made it seem as if he's the big boss who can tell New York and Cuomo what to do. It was always whistling in the wind. He had no presidential power to do that. Somebody must have finally explained it. And uh, and then he backs down that very evening. But in a sense, he is posturing as a, the wartime president and the commander in chief. But as Ashley says, with noted uh, erraticness and certainly not confidence inspiring. What about, I mean, even in this new Trump guise, he seems to be still the crass, favorite playing Trump of yours. So what about this apparent, you know, political favoritism and the doling out of desperately needed resources to different states? If you're Florida, you get it all and more. If you're New York, not so much. Are people aware of that? And is it not incredibly damning? Well, you have governors in these sort of utterly unwinnable situations where they're well aware of that because Trump, as he often does, has said the quiet part out loud, right? He said, you know, they're not going to get a call from me if they're not appreciative. This is a two-way street. That's that's not normally, A, how presidents behave. And if they are behaving that way, that's generally not something they broadcast from the podium in, <laughs> in media interviews. Um, but Trump has made that incredibly clear. And so governors do need to sort of try to walk this fine line where they're fighting on behalf of their state and they're saying what they need and they are being public about, you know, as Cuomo has done a very good job of saying, you know, we have the federal government has sent us 4,000 ventilators and we need 30,000 ventilators. But trying to do so, this is not the moment they sort of understand to go to all out war with this president, right? Because he still does wield a degree of, of power where resources are allocated. And the worst thing you can do for your state is to get your state punished by the president. And I think they're all trying to figure out how to play this in different ways. Yeah, it's like the more vulgar and favorite playing he is, the more effective, at least in his goal of being the big boss in the sandbox. Well, yes and no. I mean, governors may have to be circumspect, but people whose mothers have been killed, they won't be so circumspect. The people in the hospitals who are seeing their loved ones not get respirators because the Trump people did not pay the contract to maintain the respirators, and so thousands of them are broken, they're not going to be circumspect. When you slice yourself with a knife, there's a, a beat before you begin to bleed, and then the blood comes and comes and comes and comes. And, and that's what's happening now. We are still in shock. We, we can't be angry because we're so scared and uncertain. But in the coming hours, days, weeks, the full magnitude of the administration's not only unbelievable incompetence, but selfishness and deception is going to unveil. You know, Everyone's paid attention to that speech that Donald Trump gave in February 28th in South Carolina, the one where he talked about the, this is their new hoax. But he said something else in that speech that is, I think, more revealing of what was going on. In that speech, he alluded to the possibility that some people are hearing 
that as many as 35 to 40,000 Americans could die of coronavirus. He knew that on the 28th of February. And then he, in his, as Ashley says, I mean, his, his words are such a garble, it's often hard to understand what he meant. And then he said, but we haven't lost anybody. So, so it's just media hysteria. But the numbers have been known. The numbers were known in January. At the end of January, January 24th is when Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler got the briefing that caused her to dump all of her shares. The main facts of the story of what was going on in China were known at the end of December. Now, Donald Trump says, I couldn't respond to that because of impeachment. But the real reason he couldn't respond to it was because he was getting ready at that point to fight a war with Iran. The assassination of Qasem Soleimani is January 3rd. I think all of this is going to come more and more to the fore as the the mourning and the loss of life accumulates and as the economy plunges. We all hope that we will pass the bottom of this crisis soon, perhaps by summer. But from a crisis this deep, even if recovery begins, there isn't time for it to happen before November. And one more thing, what are the centers of economic growth in the United States? The mouth of the Hudson area, they are Los Angeles, they are the Bay Area, and the Puget Sound area. Those are the drivers of the American economy. Donald Trump says, my plan for victory is to lay waste to the motors of the American economy. How does he get the recovery that he is fantasizing will save him? It's a very good question. I I think that goes to the reason I think Trump will have such a problem surviving this. This crisis is so different from the other challenges he's faced in his presidency. I mean, things like the Mueller investigation, things like the Ukraine scandal for which he was impeached, as bad as those were and as, as outrageous as his behavior was to those of us who care about the rule of law and care about norms and, and, and rules and the pillars of a democracy, his behavior was not anything that was necessarily tangible to most American voters. It didn't impact their daily lives in the way that seeing relatives not be able to go to the hospital because it's full, or if they are at the hospital, not being able to access a ventilator they need, not to mention the economic damage. At some point, you get to a place where the reality distortion field that he has been able to cast over a certain percentage of the the population for the entirety of his presidency, I don't think works when trying to explain away a massive loss of life and enormous destruction to the economy. Those, Those just aren't things you can spin. And his other tool he uses, which is to divide, you see him already trying to do that. You see him both in trying to divide red states from blue states in the response to the crisis and also to try to blame China for the origin of the virus. I just don't know that it is enough when people are looking at damage on the scale that we expect to continue to see. Yeah, I mean, maybe not not only not enough, but so wrongheaded. But it's clear it's the only way he knows how to govern by trying to vilify. And that means China in the first instance and these economic engines that David mentions. I want to zero in in particular on one rhetorical strategy that strikes me as deeply cynical and repugnant. But what about this move to define success way, 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 way down by saying there could be 2 million deaths and I, Donald Trump, will save you by bringing it in at 200,000 more than died in all the last several wars, et cetera, et cetera. Is that something, as you say, Matt, there are facts on the ground and facts and facts and facts, and yet he's managed to prevail over them with certain perceptions, could it actually take hold that this debacle that he's presiding over and causing somehow plays as a victory when the final count is tallied? Maybe he could spin the, you know, let's say that that 100,000 people lose their lives in the virus. I think that's a very tough sell. 
But let's say he could spin that away as, look, this was a this was success. And ignore the fact that I wasn't paying attention for two months. And ignore the fact that when I did speak about it, I called it a hoax and told people there was basically nothing to worry about. Let's say he could spin that away as a success that only 100,000 people had died. I, I still suspect it doesn't help him explain away the massive economic destruction that is occurring already and is likely to continue to occur for the foreseeable future. At some point, all of his explanations, if people don't have a job, uh, if they don't have health insurance because they've lost their job, it doesn't matter what Donald Trump says. They're going to be pretty unhappy with their state and they're going to blame the administration that's, that's in office. That's just the way democracies have always worked. To a point David made a minute ago, I doubt that fundamental political law has changed just because Donald Trump is occupying the Oval Office. You know who had a great story, a lot of excuses? Herbert Hoover. <laughs> no, he no, really he did. I mean, no, it's right. everything that went wrong for him, I mean, Hoover, who is, by the way, a giant compared to, and by the way, Hoover would be the man, if you have a pandemic, Hoover is the guy for that problem. He would have been perfect right now. Like, how is the national stockpile doing? Uh, no, I need to see it myself. I'm not going to take your word for it. He would have been perfect. Hoover had a whole litany of excuses. He had to protect the gold standard. He was concerned about making sure that reparations payments continued. He had a lot of excuses. And in the end, Donald Trump's whole life has been, he was the worthless son of a vicious but very capable father who failed and failed and failed again in everything his father entrusted him. And what he's developed is a whole life strategy for evading responsibility and blame. And it kind of worked with his dad, but it doesn't work with other people. It seemed to many in Washington to work because it is hard for us who are at the center of this and for whom this is, as, as Matt said, these are our commitments. It's hard for us to keep in mind how little attention Americans pay to politics when things seem to be going well. One of the things I always try to remember is that at any given moment, probably half the country cannot name the vice president. So they certainly can't name Bob Mueller and don't know what he was all about. Uh, and yet through the good times, Donald Trump had the worst record of any president in good times ever. There was, I think until through the good times, there's not a week where more Americans did not want to vote him out of office than wanted to keep him on the job. And now he's heading into worse times than 9-11. This really is great depression level stuff. We have a much more, we're a wealthier society and a, we have a much denser social network, but this shock is more like the Great Depression than it is like the like like the Great Recession on top of sickness and death. You know, the kind of G-dad, it was the other guy that he's been doing since his father indulged him back in the 1950s. It's not going to work. And probably, it seems to me, the ravages are going to hit deeply into his very base. Well, at least the healthcare shock has been concentrated on the coast, but there's every reason to think that it's coming to the red states and people will really experience personally the kinds of terrible loss that, that if you blame the commander in chief for, then, you know, throw the bum out. All right, it's time for our sidebar. Um, this week, we're pleased to welcome Annie Duke, a professional poker player, management consultant, author, and philanthropist. Annie previously was the leading money winner among women ever in World Series of Poker history. She netted a cool $2 million as the winner of the 2004 World Series of Poker Tournament Champions. And she's written a number of books, including the gorgeously titled autobiography, How I Raised, Folded, Bluffed, flirted, cursed, and won millions at the World Series of Poker in 2005. And Annie's topic's very pertinent. She's going to tell us 
something that's been a little bit confusing, I think, to all of us, the various functions and responsibilities among FEMA, CDC, HHS, and the rest of the federal bureaucracy. So we give you Annie Duke. What is FEMA and how does it work with CDC and HHS during a pandemic? FEMA, or the Federal Emergency Management Agency, is a department of the United States Department of Homeland Security that is responsible for leading the nation in preparing for, responding to, and recovering from domestic disasters. These disasters include natural phenomena like hurricanes and pandemics, national security concerns like terrorist attacks, or environmental concerns like toxic contamination. The federal government has had a role in disaster relief since 1803, when the 7th U.S. Congress provided financial relief to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, after a series of devastating fires. However, it was not until the 1970s that FEMA became a permanent, independent federal agency. In 2003, it became part of the Department of Homeland Security. FEMA's first role is to help the country prepare for disasters. It does so in part by providing $2.5 billion in annual preparedness grants to help governments, first responders, critical infrastructure, and nonprofits build and maintain life-saving capabilities in advance of a disaster. This grant money helps these entities to build the capacity and expertise to respond in a crisis. FEMA also runs the Emergency Management Institute, a free emergency management curriculum available to federal and state and private emergency responders. During a crisis, FEMA provides expertise in emergency command and control, rather than maintaining staff and equipment of its own. FEMA's Office of Response and Recovery orchestrates the federal response by drawing on existing resources of the federal government and coordinating their efforts. For example, during the California wildfires in 2019, FEMA mobilized 100 Border Patrol agents to the state of California to assist with evacuations, security, and traffic control. During Superstorm Sandy in 2012, FEMA arranged for the distribution of a million shelf-ready meals and a million liters of water by the National Guard and voluntary agencies. When the disaster involves infectious disease, FEMA coordinates with agencies in the Department of Health and Human Services. The HHS secretary is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. The current office holder is Alex Azar. Within the HHS bureaucracy are two important agencies. The first is the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, which is a national public health institute dedicated to disease control and prevention. Dr. Robert Redfield is the current CDC director. The second is the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, or NIAID, which conducts and oversees research into infectious diseases. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been the director of NIAID since 1984. For Talking Feds, I'm Annie Duke. Thanks, Annie, for that informative tour of the alphabet soup of federal emergency response agencies. Annie has a new book coming out in September that will be well worth your attention. She's, as ever, a rational spokesperson about issues of risk management and probability that can so often be befuddling. Okay, let's get back to the virus. We talked a fair bit about the political consequences for Trump, although I meant them also in terms of just, you know, the perception and is he actually seemed to be taking charge. But let's go more into the political thicket and bring in Trump's putative opponent in November, Joe Biden. Like everything else, the political season is upended. Biden has just called for postponing the Democratic convention. 
So what what are the current political calculations for Trump and Biden? As Matt says, Trump has this powerful pulpit. On the other hand, he seems to use it with real ineptitude. Biden, on the other hand, is isolated in Delaware. We're told it's nearly impossible to raise money. He's trying to draw the contrast with Trump's erratic conduct. But is anyone listening? If you're uh, if you're in the Biden camp now, are you kind of panicking about the virus and the way it's going to play out over the next several months? Well, one one thing a couple Trump world people have told me, so this includes people inside the White House close to him and people outside the White House close to him. And again, I think it's important that this is kind of their spin, but a couple of people independently have made the analogy that in certain ways, this reminds them of the 2016 campaign for Trump, right? In the 2016 campaign, that's all that Trump was focused on, was winning, right? And there was a point when someone inside the White House told me that that Trump had finally gotten engaged on fighting the coronavirus. This was back when he was fashioning himself. He had just started fashioning himself a wartime president. And they said it worked because it was all encompassing the way the 2016 campaign was. But there were enough different facets that he's not getting bored, right? The testing to manage, the drive-through testing sites, the websites, the the PPE, the resources for the hospitals. So that was one person's point. And another person said that, again, this is like the 2016 campaign where Trump's strategy, if it could be called that, was just to be everywhere, right? It was it was to be omnipresent and ubiquitous and literally to be everywhere. And that in certain ways is what the coronavirus inadvertently has, has allowed him to do, right? He was the one who made that decision to push those briefings to 5 p.m. They now often start at 5.30. He wanted prime time. It, it goes through everyone's dinner. And while Biden's trapped in his basement, you know, trying to get buffering to work, Trump again is just everywhere. He can call into any interview he wants. He's holding two hour long news conferences. Again, what what he is saying and doing is not always getting high marks. He gives himself high marks, but a number of others in the scientific, medical and public health <laughs> communities do not. But he is sort of everywhere. And to some people in Trump world, that is a version of winning. I think it's possible that Trump authentically believes that he can win this election. But the people who are in charge of managing the election forum harbor no such illusions. The real Republican strategy is to control who is allowed to vote. I think the core of the Republican National Committee strategy, as opposed to Trump's ego-deluded imagining, is to shape the electorate. If people are able to vote freely, then obviously it's going to be a very tough election for the Republicans. But if you can, in court cases in Wisconsin and through a very conservative federal judiciary, shape the rules about who's allowed to cast an absentee ballot, for example, at a time when many people may still be quite sick and when it may be dangerous to go out, I think that's their real strategy. It is It is not a messaging strategy. It is not an issue strategy. It is a shrink the electorate and exclude other people's voters strategy. Yeah, I, I agree with David. And I, and I hope that when the talks over the next round of fiscal stimulus happen, and there's certainly going to need to be a next round, one of the things that Pelosi insists on is national vote by mail, because it, it, it is critical. But with respect to Biden, a couple things I find interesting. Number one, you know, he's not in a position that a lot of nominees are where you come out of the primary and you have to instantly kind of introduce yourself to the broader electorate. I think of, you know, the 2004 when I worked for John Kerry, you come through a primary, you have to introduce yourself to the entire country. Joe Biden doesn't need to do that. The country knows him well. They saw him as vice president for eight years. He can afford to lay low for a little while. And in fact, it might not end up being the worst thing in the world because the only way that Trump can I think when win re-election is is not just to restrict the number of, of voters, but also 
to make the decision a choice, not a referendum on him. That, look, that's the way he won 2016. Was you know it was a, a choice between two candidates that a lot of people found unpalatable, and he's always wanted someone he could run against that he could just beat up and basically disqualify that he could squeak through again with you know 45, 46, 47 percent of the vote. And the longer that Trump is kind of out there alone, if the response goes the way I suspect it will continue to go, and his fortunes uh, begin to fall, the more this election stays a referendum on Donald Trump and not a choice between him and someone else who he can attempt to disqualify. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point. I go back to what David said a few minutes ago about Jimmy Carter, right? As the hostage crisis continued to develop in 1980, Carter, of course, had the natural advantages of the presidency that Trump now enjoys, but it also meant he got totally tagged with the debacle underscored by the release of the hostages the day after the election. And so was a big loser with a capital L on his forehead. And that's the very thing that Trump most loathes and fears. So even as he has these daily uh, conferences that the press has begun to cover only selectively, given how frequently he lies at them. It's, you know, it's a it's a two edged sword because it continues to reinforce his ownership of what's going to be not only more painful, as Dave said, David says, but in a kind of a grinding way, the novelty such as it is, is going to completely dissipate and people are just going to be, you know, miserable as the months drag on. And on that front, it'll be interesting to see, because all that matters, frankly, is how the public feels and what the public believes. But it'll be interesting to see how much people believe the president owns and what he's responsible for, because the current operating theory in the White House right in this moment, and this sort of helps explain why the president very recently in that push and pull between his economic advisors and his, you know, the doctors, the medical professionals, the public health experts. He he is now for this moment on, on the public health side is they have basically told him inside the White House and frankly, some outside allies is that, look, right now, nobody blames you for the cratering economy. This is a pandemic and you're not going to get blamed for this. And if and when the economy begins to recover, you will get all the credit for the economy. But what you will be blamed for and what you will own are are the deaths, right? You will own the deaths of whatever that number is, 2.2 million, 1.1, 240,000, 100,000. All of those numbers are are horrifying. And, And so the gist was you need to get this virus under control. That's the operating assumption, but but I think you're right. There is a world in which people, they're trying to file for unemployment. They're a small business and they can't get the loan they were promised. The check from the stimulus, they needed it yesterday and it's not arriving for another four months. You know, there's a unifying in a, in a moment of crisis, but when do they start to turn on, on the person in charge? And here's another point. It's kind of quite uh, an irony, but here's something that I think Trump will get tagged for even if he doesn't deserve it. Everyone tells us, including Dr. Fauci, that there's inevitably going to be a second, smaller, hopefully, wave. But, you know, at some point, we're going to have to make a reasoned, grown-up judgment that the risk has gone down to tolerable, not zero, not zero, but tolerable levels to resume some version of normal life. And it's just to be expected with any kind of pandemic that that's going to occasion a second kind of wave of deaths and other things. The alternative to that is just, 
you know, waiting for a year or two until until everything is all clear and that just won't happen. So presumably there is some kind of return to life in the whenever it is, but it'll be before the fall and then a new bump and Trump probably gets ownership of that. Well, thank God we have someone in the White House who can make the a reasoned grown-up judgment. <laughs> Five letters. F-A-U-C-I. Let's discuss a bit the international fallout from the president's erratic, self-centered, dishonest management of the virus. So, I mean, typically one would hope, one would think that the U.S. would normally play a leading role, marshalling consensus, leading the way. But it strikes me that our overall standing, and even with our traditional alliances, are in tatters after three years of Trump rule. So what do we see with respect to the U.S.'s role in the world community in the context of the virus? I I think this may be the most enduring legacy of of this virus to American government, if not to the individual Americans who are bereaved, not to the businesses that are closed, but to us as a collectivity, the international element. For the first three years of Trump's international leadership, you could well imagine that if he lost in 2020 and were succeeded by a more normal kind of figure, it would be reasonably possible to put together international alliances in in a way and to say, look, we will never mix quaaludes and tequila ever, ever again. Uh, that was crazy, <laughs> a crazy four years, but we swear from now on, that's it. We're sober. But what has happened in this crisis has really, I think, is enduring. That what the world saw was that first, what didn't happen, the utter absence of American leadership all along. You know, when Trump blames China, of course that's true. But the question is, why were we vulnerable to China? For example, why was the World Health Organization in charge of reporting on what was going on inside of China? Because the World Health Organization is part of the UN system and as such is always bullied by authoritarian regimes. The World Health Organization two years ago was going to make Robert Mugabe a goodwill ambassador. Why would you depend on them? And the answer is, well, there used to be a large uh, Centers for Disease Control presence inside China, a US presence inside China, and Trump dismantled it. Uh, so the United States w- was, was blind by Trump's own action. And then the United States proceeded then not to help allies, not to consult, not to coordinate, and then to behave once Trump switched from his usual, Trump has this mode where he switches from AWOL, away without leave, to panic. He then proceeded to behave so unbelievably selfishly, attempting to snatch Germany's national vaccine production away from Germany, having agents on the tarmac in China where supplies were being loaded for France and offering bribes to the pilots to divert the shipment from France to the United States. Just Today, as we all speak, the 3M company released a statement that the Trump administration had asked it not to supply respirators to Canada. Now, Canada and the United States have been locked together in a single market for defense production and other national emergency supplies since 1958. This is probably even an illegal request. Anyway, 3M said they wouldn't do it. But people in Canada and France and Germany are looking at the United States and saying, these actions of Donald Trump do not seem to elicit protest. Other things do, but these acts of national egoism, they don't. This absence of any kind of coordinated response, that doesn't. And the whole world is left to wonder, where was America when we needed it most? You don't get a do-over on that. That memory will persist, that you just cannot trust the United States in a true global emergency. And as you see it, David, that will be abiding when once a sober president uh, is sworn in? The surest proof that something can happen is that something has happened. The fact that one would not, once have said it was obviously unthinkable that someone like Donald Trump could be elected, but he was. It was unthinkable that Donald Trump could do the things that he has, but he did them. So if you are in charge of planning for a country, not for the next two years or four, but for the next 20 or 30, 
any responsible leader in any other democracy has to say, you have to adjust to a world in which you just, you can't take for granted that the United States will be there in a way that people did take for granted that it would be. All of this is happening, of course, at a time when America is ceasing to be the preeminent economic power in the world. If China has not already caught up to the United States, and China may be set back by this particular crisis, but but the trend, especially with the slow American growth we're going to have in the 2020s, is for China and the United States to be equal equal powers. And everyone is going, especially in Asia, but Europe too, will have to make their adjustments to that, to a more powerful China and a less trustworthy United States. As someone who grew up in Canada, sheltered, that extraordinary sense of security and assurance of a global partnership led by the United States, I, I find this so unspeakably personally and intellectually painful. But if you're thinking from the point of view of a responsible leader of any of these democracies, um, I, I wish I could tell them, you know, it, we will not mix the tequila and the quaaludes ever again, but they know the tequila's in the cupboard and the quaaludes are in the medicine cabinet. I really couldn't agree with that more. We will always be the country that elected Donald Trump. Uh, There's no getting away from that. And for the first three years of his presidency, it looked like we might get away with it. You know, there's this this verse in the New Testament that often gets interpreted as, you know, God will only give you what you can bear. He won't give you any more than that. And for the first three years, it really seemed like, you know, look, maybe we'll get away with having Donald Trump as president. There aren't going to be any wars that test us. The economy is going to be fine. And we will be able to hit reset after four years. And this will just be a nightmare that we endured. Whether that New Testament verse is true or not, we now have a sort of Old Testament style uh, event we're dealing with. And I think the response from the United States government, which you can 100% attribute to Trump's incompetence and his divisive style leadership, I don't think anyone anywhere in the world will forget that. Well, to continue with David's quaalude and tequila analogy, that is incredibly sobering. That's all we have time for. And there's so many topics we haven't even touched on that we will leave for next week. We end in our now time-honored way on Talking Feds with a question from a listener that each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question comes from Bill B. from Twitter. Will Trump fire Fauci? So everyone in five words or fewer. All right, Matt, go. Too early for a scapegoat. David? No, he'll ban him from TV. That was six, but it was good. Okay, Ashley? No, he knows he can't. Think he can't afford it. Thank you very much to Matt, David, and Ashley. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman and Rosie Phillips are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Sam Trachtenberg. 
Thanks very much to Annie Duke for explaining about the ABCs of federal emergency management. And thanks, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.